Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 179th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Elizabeth Nesfold. Elizabeth is the Managing Director and Head of Asset and Wealth Management Investment Banking for Raymond James, which provides investment banking services for some of the largest independent advisory firms engaging in capital transactions. What's unique about Liz, though, is that she's covered wealth management as an investment banker for more than 25 years now and has seen firsthand how the valuation of wealth management firms have evolved over the decades to become what they are today. In this episode, we talk in depth about how an investment banker looks at the valuation of an advisory firm, the way that early on RAs were valued primarily by their assets under management, how evolving advisory fee models away from the traditional 1% AUM fee cause a shift for RAs to be valued by their gross revenues instead, the way further shifts in what advisory firms do and don't do to provide value for their fees and the associated costs for those services have caused advisory firm valuations to shift again to focus on multiples of free cash flow instead, and how obtaining a valuation of your advisory firm can be a powerful tool to understand whether the business is really getting a good business ROI on the resources it expends to service its clients. We also talk in-depth about what investment bankers actually do for wealth management firms, the dynamics of raising capital when starting an advisory firm, and who actually can raise capital to start a firm, how it works when an investment banker is engaged to help an advisory firm recapitalize and buy out an existing partner or founder, why advisory firms engage investment bankers to facilitate mergers and acquisitions when buying or selling a firm, and the typical success fee that investment bankers receive to help make sure a deal actually goes through. And be certain to listen to the end, where Liz shares her own journey as someone who started her own firm, Silver Lane, at her kitchen table that grew into a practice and then into a business and then ultimately was sold to Raymond James, how she navigated the challenges in crossing those deserts of profitability that emerge as the business reinvests for growth, and what she's learned as a founder that sold her own firm that she now brings to the table in counseling other advisory firm founders that are getting ready to sell their businesses as well. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Liz Nesfold. Welcome, Liz Nesfold, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. So delighted to be with you. I'm, I'm really excited about this podcast today. This is maybe a little bit of a different direction or conversation for us that you, you, you come to us from the world of investment banking, investment banking, particularly in the context of, kind of financial services, financial advisors. I know you, you've been involved in helping to close a number of, of very large RIA transaction deals. And I'm just kind of fascinated by the space because I feel like investment banking just didn't really exist in the advisor space until sort of like the decade of the 2010s. It suddenly appeared like I as firms got large enough that investment banking in our space became a thing. But I feel like most of us in the advisor world still don't really actually know what an investment bank does in an RIA <laughs> context and just what it means when firms get built to a larger size and get sold. I mean, I think we see a lot of these firm to firm deals, you know, 
mid-sized firm gobbles up smaller firms, slightly larger firm gobbles up mid-sized firm, and, and, and a lot of transactions up and down the spectrum. But I feel like there's this whole other element of what happens in transactions in the large firm space, which I ultimately view as a harbinger for what will ultimately happen all the way up and down the advisor vertical as, as what happens at large firms tends to roll down over time. And so I'm just excited to talk about like the the business of investment banking and like how does an investment banker look at our independent advisor world and the buying and selling of firms and all this stuff that that happens in our space from an investment banker's perspective. So I guess just to start, for people who don't know, like what exactly does an investment banker do <laughs> with an independent advisory firm? Because I'm I'm gonna imagine you get this question a lot. From firms that just get told, like, we're thinking about selling. Someone told me to call Liz, so I'm calling Liz. What do you do, Liz? What do you do? I'll take back a little further. So I've been in investment banking for, we now say, 25 plus years as I continue to mature in my profession. But there's so much confusion, especially just thinking about the word investment before banking. So for the first five years of my career, my extended family, these are my aunts and uncles, they would always ask me if I had any good tips on stocks. So what I can tell you I don't do is I don't manage money. But in the simplest term, an investment bank really is a financial group that engages in financial advisory transactions, generally in my space on behalf of institutions. My area of expertise is mergers and acquisitions, and my focus has been in the asset and wealth management space. But in terms of the wealth management space, I'm really going to date myself here. I actually started focusing on the wealth management universe back in 1996, if you can believe it. So at the time, it was investment council. And there were maybe six transactions in any given year. And I was a baby banker trying to figure out what to cover. Most of people won't remember back then, but for those who do, a lot of the activity was really around the asset management side. So it was mutual fund transactions, institutional money management transactions, a lot of deals on the security side of the financial services spectrum. And then there was a small, what was a cottage industry back then called really investment council. And investment council, these were the, the folks that were providing investment advice to large firm institutions, like the, the pension and foundation investment council folks? Nope. They were actually providing advice to individuals. So okay. it was money management for high net worth individuals at its core. And as obviously, as the world evolved, people began to provide more holistic service offerings as client demand increased. But way back then, it was really people who might have come out of big institutions where they had managed money. They, a number of my early clients came out of banks and trust departments, and they set up their own registered investment advisor to provide advice on the investment side to high net worth individuals. Okay. So that that's where I started to get my footing. I was really looking for an area to cover and every every large firm, every insurance company, everybody was covered by more senior investment bankers. This was the space that nobody was paying attention to and that's really how I I got into it. 
Interesting. Because because part of the dynamic when you're, uh, I guess, er- early in the investment banking career is is you know, before you're a deal maker, you just have to be like a deal understander. That's so exactly right. Pick a segment of the industry, study it, follow it, understand the deals that are happening and the people and the dynamics so that you you know the space and then at least someday you can maybe help facilitate deals in the space. But first you have to you know, pick the area where you're going to make your mark and learn, ideally one that not everybody else already covers because then it's hard to differentiate. That's exactly right. And back then, they used to consider this sort of a, a training ground for young bankers because these businesses had more simplified business models. There's really only mostly one way that they generated their revenues, and that was fee-based income. And so it was a fee on top of asset to the client for whom they were providing service. So relative to like complex multi-channel enterprises with a lot of different offerings, like here's a firm where they sit across from their clients, they give them some advice, they collect a fee, like, got it? (laughs) Exactly. Like, okay, I know how to analyze this. (laughs) I totally got it back then. Okay. But I would argue, you know, I just I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with the people and the services they were providing their clients. So that is really how I got my start. But but you're right. What does an investment banker do with these few firms that want to do something? <laughs> well, and, and how do I think about these? Like, you know, I, I know what RA business doing wealth management for high net worth individuals looks like today. When you were looking at these firms in in the mid nineteen nineties, like was it was it basically still the same kind of businesses today? There just weren't as many of them. They weren't quite as large and scaled yet, or was the business different, or were they actually quite large? We just didn't follow them the same way then. Like what did what did that business look like compared to what you see in the landscape today? Sure. I would say that relative to the number of pure asset managers, there were far fewer but it was gaining ground. And there weren't many notable transactions at the time. A lot of the business had been done on behalf of high net worth individuals with big trust companies. And you can think of the names. It was the U.S. Trust, the Northern Trust, the Wilmington Trust, the Mellons, Bank of New York. It was a small space at the time, and it it had just started to get some traction. So there was a a pretty dramatic increase in terms of the number of registered investment advisors over my career. And and what's interesting is I contrast it with the banking community. So M&A bankers who cover banks, depository institutions, when I started in the business, from the time I started in the business, our universe of registered investment advisors has increased despite as much consolidation as you think you see on an annual basis. We've increased by 60% over the last 20 some years. The banking community is probably a fraction of itself, maybe 40% of the number of banks exist today that did 20 years ago. Even though, again, banks get consolidated, new banks get formed, but the number of banking institutions is much smaller versus the number of registered investment advisors. So as the industry proliferates, as firms continue to grow, invariably people will run into continuity planning issues. Founders who formed businesses 
have created valuable businesses and their next generation can't necessarily afford to buy them out, maybe the way that they bought into their own practice. And so when you were looking at wealth management, investment council, RA deals then, who were typically buyers? Would would this be like these bank and trust companies that would buy them back? Like, oh, I don't you used to work for us. You went out and started your own firm. You built a successful client base. Now we're actually just going to go acquire it and and bring it back in. Was it was it mutual fund companies that wanted to like cross purchase and be in this business? Like who who were the traditional buyers of RIA wealth management firms back then? Back then, it was more notably either the the local or regional bank trust company or broker dealer securities firm that were the acquirers. Then it moved to more of a a national player. So again, some of the names that I mentioned could have been a U.S. trust. U.S. trust was a a pretty frequent acquirer of these businesses. BNY Mellon, first Mellon and then Bank of New York merged with Mellon on the wealth side and certainly became a material player in the space. And so... Just try and sort of get a sense of context. Like, what were the size of firms getting acquired? I mean, were there still multi-billion-dollar RIAs then, as there are today? Were were the firms smaller? Were the firms actually bigger? Like, what did the what did that landscape look like? If you look at the number of transactions that occur in any given year, there are still a number of firms that are below a billion in assets that are regularly acquired on an annual basis, that was the lot of them. So there were no firms that were, you know, 4 billion, 10 billion, 15 billion. It was very few and far between. And for those firms that were more sizable, often they they sprung out of investment consulting practices, maybe for family offices. And so the assets looked very large, but it was still very much a cottage industry smaller businesses that may on the average be five, six hundred million in assets. And so when I started covering this space, critical mass for a firm that now today called wealth management, back then investment council, financial planner, would have been, you know, a quarter of a billion in assets was a, a good living. Then the quarter of a billion sort of moved to half a billion. Half a billion was sizable. And the half a billion moved to a billion as more of a new critical mass threshold. So the industry sort of grew up as the markets continued to evolve. And there was a a greater recognition of services that may have historically been provided by banks and trust companies that could be also made available by independent firms that, that were serving clients locally or regionally. How did firms get valued at the time? Was it, was it similar to the value mechanics today? Did I guess at least rules of thumb, like two times revenue still hold then? Was it was it more cash flow based? Was it other models for evaluating firms at the time? I would say early days, people were still trying to figure out if it's a function of assets. So AUM played a role to some extent and how much you managed invariably transition to what kind of revenues did you have? because the earlier models were still trying to start with a a 1% fee. So if everybody starts with a 1% fee, then really you're trying to gauge 
size of assets, size of clientele. But as the industry continued to evolve and as there was a, a rising of multifamily offices and advisory firms for more substantial families, that rule of looking at assets, looking at revenues went out the, the door because what you found is that the, the bigger the family, the bigger the relationship, or even it could be multiple families aggregating one family relationship somewhere it was sort of a Walmart type pricing. You were trying to make it up in volume, but the fees were discounted. So it was hard to just assume that a firm with a billion dollars serving ultra affluent clients would be valued and have the same revenues that a firm with a billion serving a more mass affluent clientele might generate. Interesting. So I, so I sort of feel like there's this evolution, like first First, it was valued based on assets, either because everyone charged fairly consistent fees or or because acquirers would come and say, like, I don't really care what your fee model is. Like, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to buy the assets. This is what we're going to do, yes. what we're going to charge. So I just need to know the asset based on which I can apply my fees. I don't actually care whether what 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 you were charging. If you were charging less, we're going to get them up to our fee. And if you're charging more, then we're going to put them on our fee schedule anyways. Then it started shifting to oh, I guess clients actually don't like fee changes so much. Maybe we should pay attention to what you were charging. So so let's look at your fees and and your revenue base. And then it went one stage further to say, oh, okay, but not everyone charges the same. Not everyone gives the same pricing relative to the size of the relationship. Some of these people are kind of running firms a little better. Some of these are maybe underpricing for their services we probably have to drill all the way down to what is your revenue and what is your cost and what's your actual profit. And and let's start looking at this as like profits and free cash flows when we're trying to value the firm. Exactly right. It's so interesting to, I, I haven't thought about that journey in actually ever, <laughs> Michael. So thank you for taking me down memory lane because you think way back when, and there was so much conformity to what people were doing and how they were charging. And now there are so many different models today with maybe bespoke services and solutions, some more broad-based and holistic, others still more investment bias, you know, in different geographies, charging different rates with different cost infrastructures and different layers of complexity and technology. So you really have to look at the whole picture and it's not just a static cash flow number either. So even that has changed pretty materially because in, in even if you, you went 10 years ago, still it was many larger players who were looking at smaller players combining. So they didn't necessarily focus so much on momentum of these businesses. Now, as we see many more impactful and sizable organizations they, they may stand alone post-acquisition. And so those firms, you have to think about not only what they do, for whom they do it, is there any concentration? How do they run their business? Is it efficient? Is there some operating gearing embedded in what they do? Are they driving business through organic means, meaning sourcing those clients? Are they growing through sub-acquisition? Are they doing both? Or are they showing revenue growth, and they're really not actually growing organically post those acquisitions. So you really have to 
peel the layers of the onion back pretty carefully to try and assess value. When I'm I'm struck as well by this evolution that you know I, I feel like there's a lot of discussion today of sort of the the proverbial ubiquity of the one percent AUM fee and mm-hmm. that quote unquote like everybody kind of charged the same thing for sort of similar services, but that still at the end of the day, like we are maybe we are more broad in what we do for our fees or like there's a more of a range of what firms do for these fees than than there was in the past when the model and the service offerings really were simpler like i charge you 1% and i throw on the binders and i manage the <laughs> pot of money i manage the pot of money that you've got and like everybody kind of knew how that model worked sure and that you know there was this at least in in advisor world this was somewhat infamous chart that uh fidelity had put out 2 or 3 years ago that sort of showed this graph of the fees that advisors charged on on one axis and then the number of services that advisors provided for that fee on the other axis. Like, you know, do you just do money management mm-hmm. only? Do you also do financial planning? Do you dig into retirements? Do you dig into estate planning? Do you do tax stuff? And, you know, normally you would sort of expect this linear relationship like the more services i provide the higher my fees are because i'm doing more things so i got to charge a higher fee schedule and what they found in practice was yeah basically didn't matter whether you did like one or two services or 12 median fee was one percent at all levels and all levels had a huge range above and below it that like there was basically no relationship (laughs) between (laughs) the fees the the aum fees that advisors were charging and what they were doing for those AUM fees. You had like high fees and little service, just crazy profitable businesses. Some might even argue too profitable. You had low fee services providing a ton of support for their clients and you know, great clients, great relationships, horribly not profitable relative to the, the fees they were charging and everything in between, which I, I guess kind of gets back to this point that you've made of why we've moved from let's just look at what your asset base is to let's look at what your revenue base is to, oh, I guess we really actually have to drill down to what is your revenue? What is your cost structure? What are you doing for these clients for your services? And then going even one stage beyond that, which is now let's talk about your growth on a forward-looking basis. And are you growing? Are you not growing? Are you growing profitably? Is it actual organic growth? Are you just kind of buying growth with acquisitions? And doing even more just to deconstruct, like, what is the actual forward-looking health of this business? Mm-hmm. That's, that's exactly right. One would think, exactly as you've articulated, more services equals more revenues. But what happened is that people were trying to differentiate their service model from someone else. So they were throwing in, like, I'll give you a free oil change annually with that car uh, to differentiate against the auto dealer down the the street. And so it began to be expected that you would provide more services for the same fee, or everybody would just talk about wealth management. And to a client who was, you know, maybe a ran a, a dry cleaning chain and sold that, it all sounds the same up front. Only until you get in deep with the the first advisor that you ever use do you start to understand what you're getting for the fees. And even then, it may take them two advisors before they really understand 
what they're getting and how it's being charged. And, you know, are in a bigger institution, are they losing money on something to gain opportunity elsewhere, meaning on the product side, the asset management side of the equation? So it's still very confusing in the marketplace. But for me as an advisor looking at these businesses, I was so excited to learn more about the holistic nature of wealth management and the broad spectrum of services that could be offered, whether it was, you know, investment management, financial planning, tax and trust and estate planning, tax compliance, so we're doing your, your, your tax returns for you as well, and how people would charge. And when people started to bundle everything, what I realized is that people weren't saying to clients, this actually costs me money. You want me to be in business to make a profit because if I am profitable, I can have wonderful and talented people servicing your relationship. If I am not, I will have to skimp on something you just don't know where. And so it prompted me years ago to write an article for the industry called How to Make Money in Wealth Management. And it was published in Trust in the States. And it really was a, a deep dive into the fee models and where people were getting it wrong because this is a wonderful business and your clients should want you to actually make money. You're not enough for profit. But if you give things away, and, and this is, I'm glad we're having this conversation right now as we face an environment, you know, surrounded by a pandemic, people are so tempted to drop their fees, provide more services, waive fees, make concessions in volatile markets because they feel like they need to show stability or growth. These are the times where people make, I would say, not the best decisions on their fee model. And so for the industry at large, you, you provide so many wonderful services. You are working harder today than you were a year ago for those client relationships, holding more hands, looking daily at the market, trying to come up with strategies to hedge, doing more planning, trying to think more creatively about the tax environment with all the things that are going on. Do not give way to concessions on your fees because you earn your money and you should charge it fully. Well, and that to me is one of the interesting things about even how how the business has evolved over the over the time frame that you're talking about that I, I first of all, it just it strikes me like we have spent 20 years talking about you know, like the crushing pressure of fee compression mm -hmm. and how our fees are doomed to collapse as all of this technology crops up. Mm -hmm. But here you are talking about you know, wealth management in the RIA business in the 1990s, like dare I say, like the pre-internet era. <laughs> I guess we can say that now. We have the pre-internet era. Advisory firms are providing individual wealth management services to clients charging a 1% fee. And now here we are 20 plus years later, mind-numbingly incredible, like not mind-numbingly, like mind-blowing evolution and development of internet technology and automation and APIs and workflows and all of these things that we didn't have that make the business unbelievably more efficient than it was. And we're charging the same 1% fee for providing holistic wealth management services. And like all of the discussion, I feel like we've seemed to have collectively had around this collapse in fees 
has not happened despite like literally exponential improvements in technology and efficiency. But what has happened on the other end that I think you're, you're making a good point about, particularly in sort of transition environments like this, is it does sound like at the end of the day, if I add up what a firm does for its clients to justify that 1% fee, we do a lot mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. than we than we used to. Like we only do more because we can, thanks to all that cool technology and efficiency stuff. But like it's not it's not that fees are getting compressed because the technology is automating all that stuff. It's that it's game on for us to constantly do more to justify the fee, and we have to use the technology to get efficient to do more to justify the fee, or then we get out competed by someone else. But that it's it's more of a like there's a there's a service creep phenomenon much more so than a fee compression phenomenon. And I would say you're right. It's not necessarily the fee compression. The service creep is one thing, but what people state in their ADV that they actually charge is often markedly different from what we see when we get under the hood. So people will make the decision And again, it depends on what are the incentives for originating new business? How does that work internally? Sometimes they don't understand when you you talk about that iceberg and, and seeing what's below the water, what they're doing to their own business model by virtue of the the incentives they may proffer to the advisors bringing new business. So if there aren't rules of engagement around, okay, this is the, the type of relationship, there is a deep dive in terms of the complexity of the relationship, the services, sort of like a service matrix, if you will, to try and figure out what does it cost us there? And then what kind of margin is a fair margin to put on top of that business? You can have people making concessions without even really realizing it. So you say, hey, isn't that wonderful that an advisor brought in another quarter of a million of annualized revenues this last year? Give him or her a, a, a pat on the back and an extra bonus and, and uh, you know some kind of incentive there. And then when you look to see what had been charged relative to the services that are promised to the client, you don't even realize you're not even making much of a margin. So there is often when we get into the mix on valuing businesses, we start very, very granularly in terms of looking at the, the clientele. We want to understand when did the clients come in? So inception date of the relationship, you know, have they been good adders of assets? Are they draining their accounts? Who services the relationships? How many services do you provide in that relationship? How automated or how processed is it in terms of your, you talk about workflow and API, are you moving from person to person without dropping any balls or is it much more manual in terms of what you're offering? And then at the end of the day, you get through the analysis with the client. They don't realize that in some cases they have a 30% margin on this relationship. And in this relationship, it's a larger relationship, but they're actually losing money given the number of services relative to what they've charged and the incentives that they may be paying internally for somebody who sourced the business separate from somebody who's managing the relationship. So so can you give us maybe some examples of, of like structures you see that get set up that I know that like the firm is very proud of. And then when you get in there wearing your your investment banking valuation hat are looking and saying like, oh, no, no, this is not as profitable as you think it is, or this isn't profitable at all. 
you know, let me deconstruct your business and show you why. Like, are there are there common practices that you find that turn out to be more problematic than most firms realize? Hmm. Often they want to provide financial planning for free. There is a cost to that. And maybe you can minimize that cost and maybe you're doing it up front. Maybe you're doing it annually. That is often the way somebody starts their relationship. But sometimes a client may come in on the investment management side and you want to throw that in for free. There are a number of firms that are now doing tax planning and prep. Again, the the tax prep side of the equation is not a high marginal contributor. So some firms that we'd seen actually were giving away that service. And again, it was a drain on the margin. And maybe it was a, a volume business at two points in time in the year, sort of heading into April and then towards October still giving away that business as part of the the holistic package if you're not charging fully or at least building up to the full fee became problematic and so the firms that say but i'm but i'm like i have to do this to win the business i have to do this to compete for the business like this is what affluent clients expect of us now i can't charge the same fees if i don't do this like are they are they off base on that or is the point well, okay, if you're going to do that, you need it to be charging more. Your fees aren't aligned with all the things you're doing. Because again, I feel like for some firms, they would just say, well, well, yeah, like uh, you you could say those things lower my margins, but like I wasn't going to get and keep the clients if I didn't do that stuff. Like that's what I got to do now. <laughs> is, is that like is that not a valid way to look at it? Probably for the the industry at large, that is the way that they're looking at it. But now we're going to distinguish the best firms in the industry. The best firms in the industry think about their value proposition and they learn. And often it's bringing in a consultant or coach to help them think about the messaging to the the end client. It all sounds the same. Then you need to work on your message. Clients will want you to be in business for the long term. It is a competitive marketplace, but often they're really connecting to one individual in particular that they feel comfortable with because they feel that individual is transparently articulating what will be provided versus what it's going to cost. And that really wins the day. If you don't have your message on squarely and you're not proactively thinking about the dirty word in the wealth management space, sales you probably will get stuck in that trap. And so I just remember in the early days in wealth management, really when I was dealing with single family offices who'd open their doors into multifamily offices and more of the planners who turned holistic uh, wealth managers, sales was such a bad word. They didn't like to talk about sales. They didn't like to profile themselves. They didn't want to be in the press or be noted in any particular way, because it felt contrary to the confidences of these high net worth individuals for whom they were managing assets and advising on their financial life. But at the the root of it, if you are going to run whatever the business is, you have to think about sales. And if sales doesn't become part of your culture, you will find yourself making concessions merely to win the business to be more sustainable for your next generation, to show that you're bringing things in, 
because if you're bringing something in and then you're not doing a good job advising the client, you get backdoored. So you may be offsetting a relationship out with a relationship in. So you have to think about the whole holistic picture of managing a business. And that is where I think somebody like me comes in to start to talk about, you know, how do you grow and manage and, and evolve as a business from a practice, because again, you know, from the early part of our conversation, this industry started out as a cottage industry. There were these small boutique organizations that slowly evolved. And, you know, it still is a practice mindset, but now it's time to think of ourselves as a business. And in any good business, if you're any portfolio manager and you're peeling the layers of the onion on the best businesses, the marquee businesses, they really are thinking not only about the product that they provide, but the channels that they're selling into and how they're going to continue to grow and uh, become a more valuable enterprise. We need to do that within the industry ourselves. I had one, probably the best student of our services, debating on whether I name names. All right, I'll name a name. He's a longtime friend of mine now. A gentleman named Greg Fisher became a student of our services to try and understand how do you build a business? How do you drive value? It wasn't just our services, but he engaged a number of the best coaches around messaging, around operations, around you name it. He was always trying to improve, not only in terms of the, the efficiencies, the technology, the breadth of the offering, but also trying to understand the messaging as well, the brand build. And I met Greg when he was about 300 million in assets. And we did some early valuation work together. And a big part of what he found valuable was the qualitative assessment, really breaking up his business into modules to talk about the service aspect of what they did, the fees that they charge, the technology that they use, the people that are structured around the teams to service the clients, and trying to gauge it relative to the competitive set, people he deemed competitors. He did such a phenomenal job to really understand what drives value. He built a wonderfully valuable business that invariably we sold to People's Bank. But in that journey together, he grew 10x. So he was about 300 million when we started our relationship together. And I think he sold at maybe three and a half billion in assets. And that's his mindset. His mindset is a 10x mindset. More often than not in this industry, people are just living and breathing their day jobs and they don't lift their heads up. And that's why I'm so grateful to you and to the podcast that you do to explore more of how people have become successful in the different aspects and facets of the business that people can learn best practices from. But this is a person who thrived on learning to do better, even when he thought his team was doing the very best job in, you know, advertising, marketing, client service, whatever it was, he's always looking to do better. And that kind of mindset creates an invaluable business. And people will see it when they look at the model. They'll see that there is leverage in the model. It was a, a 10x experience for me as well, just watching him evolve as, as a manager and advisor. 
I'm very struck by the way you frame this service creep to substantiate value that, yes, clients may demand more for the fees that we charge to justify the value, but that in some cases, this this isn't actually a value problem for the fees that you charge. This is a sales problem and a marketing problem and a differentiation problem that that we're trying to solve for by saying, well, I'll also do this, I'll also do this, I'll also do this, I'll also do this. <laughs> like to try like throw enough things onto the pile to to get the client on board. I sometimes inelegantly call this value barfing. Like I'll just keep barfing. I'm like, I'll do this and I'll do this and I'll do this. And I'll do this. like, well, here's a whole bunch of value. Now pay me. <laughs> that that like I think we do get trapped in this sometimes where you know you feel the pressure someone says like well why should i work with your firm and not the other two that i'm talking to because i feel like they always interview us in threes it's always us and two others Mm -hmm. right and you get into that moment of like well why would i hire your firm over over someone else's and and i feel like you you know you sort of end out with three ways that you try to solve this like number one we're cheaper right so we compete on costs or i discount my fees Number two, we do more. So I start throwing in more services. Or number three, well, we're different than those two. Let me tell you why. And if you're good on number three, if you can clearly explain why you're different, then if the way you're different actually lines up with what the client needs, like, oh, well, I guess you're the only one that's going to do that. So I clearly I need to work with you. But if you if you can't answer for the differentiation question in some meaningful way that's relevant for the client, we all get stuck on the either two. Either we start value barfing our way there, throw in more for free and more for free and more for free, and then kind of erode the margins down, or we start discounting, like, well, my fee schedule says that, but I'll I'll give you this break point, or I'll pretend you got here, or I'll aggregate your household, or I'll I'll uh, I agree your assets with the person who referred you so you can get a group discount rate. Like whatever it is that we do, <laughs> all those different ways that we start compromising our fee, like I'll waive the planning fee for you since you're a meaningful relationship, all those things that we start doing that in some way, shape or form begins to drag down the fee and we essentially compete on cost mm-hmm. when we're usually not actually scaled enough to compete on cost, right? Usually the winners on cost competition are the biggest with the most economies of scale, we compete with costs without scale, and then we start to erode the margins again. So you kind of framed up this interesting look of what does it mean to get a valuation on your business? I guess like at Greg's stage, right? Like he had, he had 300 million under management, which is still a very sizable firm. Like he had 300 million and wanted to 10x to 3 billion. And was trying to figure out how to get there. I, I feel like I'll, for advisors that go that route, like they want that kind of growth. It tends to be a, well, you know, I'll get a practice management consultant or an executive coach or a marketing coach or like, you know, help, help go after some area of the business. I don't feel like there's a lot of firms that say, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to get how to 10x my business. Let's get a valuation for where it is today. Mm-hmm. There aren't. And I think more and more people are trying to at least get their arms around it because there is some pressure as you think about next generation talent to find ways to incent them. But apart from estate planning, sadly, sometimes divorce settlements or continuity planning, 
I, I don't necessarily think people really want to engage on that front. And it's not that they don't want to, they probably don't think about it. So think about what they do. So they do the most incredible work for their clients to help them plan their financial lives. But back to your iceberg analysis, I think they keep their heads down so much in trying to serve the client that they forget to pick it up and say, hey, you know what, let me take stock in, in where I am, what I've done, and where I'm headed. And it's, somebody told me this once, I believe it's true, but it wasn't Wayne Gretzky who said, uh, skating to where the puck is headed, it was actually his father. But the advisor community, by and large, doesn't generally do that. They do that for their clients in the planning, right? They're always right. trying to figure out, okay, let's use some analyses. And it used to be, okay, average age is 75. Now people are probably saying average age of 90. Right. And you know, how do you spend annually? What do you want to leave? All that planning, trying to think about taking the client who's 55 to the age of 80 or 90 or however far out we're going these days. And this is what you need to do to get there, Mr. Smith, Mrs. Smith. This is your earnings. This is what you need to reinvest. This is how we'll invest it. You know, this is how much you can spend. So they do all of this work to help people project for the next 20 years. And they don't do that for themselves. So if you think about some of the larger firms, these are the firms who are thinking with their business hat on. And sometimes it is an entrepreneur who says, you know what, I am great at the CIO side of the equation. I don't like managing people. That's not my thing. You have to figure out what is your thing. You know, if you are the predominant owner, more often than not, you wear the CEO hat. Or if you're one of the early founders, more often than not, one of those founders wears that hat. But sometimes it's good to take stock in the business to say, where are we headed? And are we the right people in the right roles? And do we have the right people in the right roles on the bus? Or do we need to start thinking about a planning for ourselves? And that is often when we're doing the valuation strategic advisory work, what we're trying to help people do is take stock in their business, really understand where are they strong and where do they need to do some work or where are they missing human capital that could help them. So I remember being called in by a, a past client who I, I had sold to a multifamily office and, and my client then was actually running the combined firm and they thought they were going to go out and make regional acquisition. And we did this advisory work right up front. And what we realized is that they were just starting to get their marketing message honed. They were just starting to hit major pipeline traction on the business development and organic growth side that we actually said, all right, bad for my business, but you don't need to hire us right now. You're growing too quickly organically. This is where you spend your time. If you can grow organically, beautifully, let's not create noise by trying to do some sub-acquisitions when you're not yet ready. Focus there because that is the holy grail is figuring out how to grow the business organically. So it was one of those sort of a therapeutic moment for them that they said, holy cow, you're right, we should spend our time. And they, this is probably seven years ago, they haven't done an acquisition since, but they have grown nicely. They're more than $5 billion in assets. 
But it is really important to find moments in your business evolution to pause and take stock and find somebody to engage with. It could be sometimes it's just a, a CEO coach. It could be somebody to help you think about the operational aspects. It could be someone to help you think about valuation and the business dynamic. But there are going to be these important points in time. And the natural reaction is to not spend the money, right? But the, the well-trained mind who has sort of a thirst for knowledge and doing better and growing better and being stronger, that is the person who's likely to engage. And sometimes we have clients who've engaged with us multiple times over the years, and then they come in for their, quote, tune-up. And from my perspective, I think that's wonderful because they're doing for themselves what they do for their clients. And so is, is sort of broadly speaking, like valuation work a big piece of literally what your firm does at this point is just helping advisors do valuations on their businesses and, and sort of the extension that comes from it of actually understanding the moving levers of your business by doing evaluation on your business. For us, given where we are in our evolution, and you'll remember I started as a business who built it, I was a practice who built a business that then sold. Ours is about relationship build. So we don't tend to just do an annual valuation for the sake of doing an annual valuation. For me in particular, it is really a way to engage to start building a relationship. If someone just needs a cheap valuation, I'd be more than happy to <laughs> provide referrals. But if it is somebody who, much like Greg Fisher, is really trying to think about the journey and value creation and better business management and tighter operations and happy employees and happy clients, that's where I like to engage on the valuation strategic advisory side. So we tend to have clients and, and my husband, who, as you know, was our COO and really helped put in place a lot of things that we do that is much more process oriented. But Peter's own analysis of our business was that if we engage people long before they're thinking about selling, invariably they become, you know, a multiple time relationship. I have one client who we've done seven things together. And so we're really building a relationship to continue the growth trajectory. So that's where I engage on the valuation side. But there are a lot of wonderful firms who provide just purely valuation guidance and sort of an annual valuation test on what's the security worth. Can I ask, like, who do you typically look at as firms that you would send people out to do valuation work for? If someone's at least looking at this and saying, like, I'm not necessarily ready to sell yet, but you know, this idea of actually getting a professional valuation, seeing how does someone else look at the value levers of my business is interesting. So a, a longtime friend of our firm is a gentleman named Matt Crow, who runs the, the practice group at Mercer Capital around this space. Not to be confused with Mercer Advisors, who's an advisory firm in this space. Exactly. The, the other The other, <laughs> the other Mercer. Mercer. <laughs> One of the other Mercers. So he's done a, a wonderful job around this space in particular and has really grown a big practice group for it. So help me understand a little bit more now, kind of having looked broadly at the, the industry and the evolution of the industry, bring us back to like, what does an investment bank do? We've sort of talked about at least what, what valuation services are, just like what valuations 
do for your firm, not just for literally valuing it, but kind of looking at it as what are you going to build and how are you going to move the value levers in your firm to build enterprise value? But what does an investment bank itself do in this, in the, in the context of our industry? Oh boy, <laughs> you think I would, it would roll off the tip of my tongue. You know, an investment bank can provide a broad array of financial advisory services on behalf of individuals and institutions. And it, it really can do so at various stages of a company's life cycle. So it could be capital raising in the early stages. It could be M&A in terms of a growth cycle. It could be obviously valuation fairness opinion in the context of some combination or for estate planning purposes. It could be recapitalization in the uh, instance of you know taking an ownership block out of the business. It could be a restructuring in tough times. It could involve services for more sizable players, something like a focused financial of an IPO advisory, IPO offerings, follow-on offerings, you know, debt capital market solutions for some of our larger clients, and especially in an environment where lower for longer went even lower on interest rates, debt is a good source of financing for transactions. So we have an, an incredible debt capital markets group who will help put a, a very competitive package together that may be in the form of a deal line of credit for more acquisitive firms. So there are a variety of things that we can do. Obviously, a big part of probably one of the marquee areas for many investment banks is the M&A advisory, mergers and acquisitions advisory work that firms like us do for our clients. And so I want to actually dig a little bit further into some of those because I, I think to the extent advisors are aware of investment banks, I think we tend to think of this in the context of of M&A in particular. And and you noted a couple of other things there that just are out there, but we don't necessarily talk about as much. So capital raising for firms in the early stage. So talk to us a little bit about what that looks like. Like what what size firm does that? What do you where do you get capital? How does that mechanism work? So I think most of us are sort of used to, you know, you run it till you run it, and then you sell it when you sell it. Like <laughs> What's, what's capital raising in the context of, of an advisory business? So it could really be, so for a startup firm, you're really looking for seed capital. You know, it could be from an angel investor community. It could be venture capitalists. And invariably, you're looking to find somebody who can help you. You obviously have more than hopefully a business plan. You have the early stage business that really needs capital to continue to grow. But, you know, the first way you can do it is obviously bootstrap your own business. You can put your own personal wealth in it. You know, I would say there are even today. So we started in the 90s on our journey, Michael, and now we're here in 2020. You know, there's even crowdsourcing, crowdfunding campaign meetings. Right. You know, there are loans that you, you can look for. There's always the friends and family network. But if you're going to start to organize that effort, you're really looking for somebody who can raise assets with 
maybe a, a more retail or high net worth oriented community for smaller businesses. And that is certainly something that, you know, depending on the size of mandate that Raymond James does, as you think about it with larger businesses that start to become more mature, who are really at this high growth, high octane part of their trajectory, they may be looking for growth capital. So in this wicked environment, a lot of what we're doing right now is we're doing minority raises for firms that feel like the next three to five years are going to be the most opportunistic time. And so they're looking for growth capital. And that could come in the form of a family office, a pension fund, a long life capital investor, a fundless sponsor, a private equity sponsor. You know, from where I started in my career to today, there are so many more choices for capital than there ever have been. But again, where would one even begin? So often it is somebody who's either, you know, very focused on capital raising or M&A advisory, so a minority sale technically, and that minority sale could be some de-risking for some people who aren't ready for the growth cycle and capital infusion for the partners who are going to take it to the next level. But this itself is a, a, a very big business. There are boutiques that do this. There are more sizable investment banks, mid-sized investment banks. And this sourcing of capital is an important feature for firms that are really in, in the, the J-curve of their, their growth cycle. Those that really have a head on where they're heading, they see it in terms of you, you need more human capital that, that costs money. Looking at a sub-acquisition doing more R&D on some tech leverage point for the business, all of that takes capital. And the way our, our industry started, they started by bootstrapping, just doing it themselves, right? Start with a couple of clients, have some profits, reinvest, grow a little bit more, grow a little bit more. But we're now at the point in the evolution of this industry where the opportunities are, is ginormous a word? ginormous yeah. coming out of I'll, I'll accept it I'll accept it <laughs> coming out of these horrific environments and it's sort of uh, chance favors the trained mind but chance also favors those with a wallet to draw from chance favors the prepared mind and those with war chests <laughs> exactly and so you look back to 2008 and some of the firms we talk about and we know well and, and those CEOs who've been interviewed by you on your podcast, those are firms who, you know, got while the getting was good coming out of the crisis. They were hiring people. They were doing lift outs. They were doing tuck-in acquisitions. They were doing things that were a little bit more transformational. They were opening offices. They were doing all the things that you probably say, oh my God, I could never envision doing that. You know, sitting now quarantined at home. I could never put that into my business plan. But the firms that are now really sizable, independent or boutique players that are names that everybody knows now, those are the firms that over the last 10, 12 years were taking advantage of market opportunity, even when people would rather just, you know, put their heads back down and just, you know, hold on to things. They were making brave and bold decisions to get to the, the size that they are. And they came out of a horrific market environment. 
So, so help me understand a little bit more about how some of these deals come together. I'm, I'm, you know, when we talk about things like firms that want growth capital, you know, sort of translated, like we give you cash, you use cash to go spend on marketing or buying other firms or whatever thing you're, you're going to do. That is your growth strategy when you have some cash on the books. Can you give us some sense of like, what is a, what does a deal look like? Like, I don't even know if there's a prototypical firm that does this. I'm at least imagine, imagining like, you know, uh, we have $250 million under management, you know, a solid business with two plus million dollars of revenue. We think there's a lot of opportunity to grow. We've got some neat opportunities in our local market. Liz, I heard you've got access to capital. You know, we want a piece of because we want to grow. What would a deal look like for a firm? like that? Well, I guess first is even that even the type of firm that you would work with. But what does a deal look like for a firm at that size? Like, what do you get? How do the mechanics work? How much, you know, how much do you get for what do you give up? What does a growth growth capital deal look like? Sure. And for a firm like that, it could be that there's a platform partner who is really going to help finance some of that growth activity. And so there are some platforms, so I'll take the other side of the house at Raymond James on the wealth side of the business. They have a bank associated with the wealth side of the business, and they have provided capital to advisors looking at these combinations. So sometimes the partner already exists, meaning the partner, capital partner, exists within your own domain. It could be a platform partner that you're doing business with. It could be uh, whether it's a a dynasty, it could be uh, Schwab Fidelity helping you think through other advisors who might want to combine. So you need to be organized in your thinking because you don't just go out and say, hey, I want growth capital. We got to decide what we want to do here. Are we a, a buyer, a seller, a merger? And what we are seeing out of this industry and is so much fun Versus when I started in the industry where it was ye local banker or, or broker or trust company who was making the acquisition, now the industry itself is doing 40% of the transactions. So industry, so advisor to advisor deals are the biggest community of acquirers, mergers of the potential sellers. So it really is, are we a young team and we want to continue the growth trajectory and we have developed more infrastructure. You know, we've got a lot of great operating gearing and leverage points. We might be looking for a firm where there is a continuity issue, meaning a founder who built a practice and really doesn't have a logical next generation successor. And so we're really looking to combine, but that founder is hard-pressed to turn over the keys to what he will believe is a Maserati without de-risking, right? He might right. roll some equity. So now here we are. We're a $250 million in asset advisor. He's got $150 million. We're going to combine our firms, and he wants to take some money off the table. So the, the good thing about this environment, there are now financing sources that come in the form of sort of SBA loans. There is firms who will provide as platform partners capital. There are private equity firms, as I mentioned before, who will help smaller firms because they are really smaller pools of capital. So we need to be organized in our thinking. Can we afford it ourselves? 
Do we have a strong bank relationship so the bank is willing to give us a deal line of credit? How much do we need? So we've had our negotiation. We've determined that his business is worth, you know, $4 million. We're not going to write him a check for $4 million up front. Now we've got a thing about the form of consideration. Is it cash and stock combination? We know he wants some cash and the timing of those payments. Are we issuing a note? Is it payable over five years? So he's really giving us the seller financing and we're going to be able to use some of the cash flow for that financing. So it's sort of all over the map in terms of how you fund these deals. A big part of this, and hopefully if people take nothing away from our conversation other than planning, that's what it's about here. So, you know, a lot of people do engage with advisors to get their deals done, but there are many people who do deals without advisors, but it is about an awful lot of planning and discussion and vetting to make sure that you understand what are your sources of capital? What are you looking to do? You know, how well positioned are you if you're going to go through a credit committee because you're going to get debt financing Or are you prepared to sell majority interest of your firm if you get an equity financing with a private equity sponsor? You've got to think through all of those levers. And there's an awful lot out there to educate yourself, but it's important that you show up with at least some homework under your belt and some sense of where you're heading back to Wayne Gretzky's father. We want to be a half a billion in assets. We're 250 today. We're good organic growers. We're growing at 15%, you know, compound annual growth just organically. That's a great grower, certainly in this market. And we want to merge with somebody who's like-minded. Maybe that's a cashless exchange. We don't need the cash. But we also want to look at acquiring somebody bigger than us because that's a founder who needs his exit. We're going to need capital for that. But we have to have a game plan. And so you also mentioned that firms can even look at, at capital as startups. Is, is that something you actually see happening in the, in the RA space? I mean, just can you know, Joe Smith, who wants to you know, start up his own advisory firm, go out and get a dollars invested to his startup RAA to hang a shingle and go try to start get clients and doing his thing? Like, does that kind of startup capital exist for RAs? Or are you talking about different kinds of firms and different kinds of, I guess, aspirations for firms that go out for startup capital? Well, there has to be some there there. So there needs to be more than just a plan. Aha, uh-huh, I want to open up an advisory business. Often these days, it could be somebody who is in a bigger institution that has a clientele that is thinking about going independent or thinking about combining with somebody who's lifting out and somebody who's already in the RAA spectrum that may need their financing. It's hard to go out and say, hey, doing a startup, don't know when I'm going to get my first client, you know, haven't really been in the space but I think it would be a neat idea. I'm not sure where you get financing for that, but if you find it, call me and let me know. (laughs) But, you know, for those who are really thinking about branching out of a bigger institution, there is capital available. For firms that may be smaller in nature that are trying to recruit a team or a couple of teams, 
that capital is available. But there has to be something that someone who's looking for a return or some credit committee who has to go through a process can hang their hat on because, um, you know, there, there's no dearth of good ideas out there. But invariably, those good ideas have to make it through proof of concept into, you know, practice or business. And that's what would get funded. And so that's kind of the framing of there, there does need to be some there there. <laughs> right. Just to be fair, like not, you know, Hey, I think it would need be neat to be a financial advisor. I'm going to go get some startup capital, but you know, I have an established track record. I've already built and sold a firm and I want to do another one. I've, you know, built a practice over here, but I want to go out as an independent and I need some dollars in order to make that happen. Or, you know, I built a business. I want to do a side business or a second one, like that kind of stuff. Some combination of there's revenue or there's clients or there's a track record there. There's a there, there, Sure. put some of that on the table, but otherwise like we're still not in a world of, of just getting staked to start your own RIA from scratch. Exactly. Unless you are a serial entrepreneur who've had exits that have been successful. So a couple people that I think of, you know, is Joe Duran did it before, did it again with United Capital one of my favorite, you know, past clients, a gentleman named Steve Lachin, who built a firm called Advice Period. Steve built and sold a number of businesses. So if he wanted capital tomorrow on a neat business idea, that would be available. Again, for, for those who've done it, have a following and, uh, you know, want to do it again, there is capital. But generally speaking, you have to have more than just a good business idea. So going to the other end, you you talked about other areas where a firm like yours may be involved, things like re- recapitalizations when buying out an owner. And I think for a lot of advisory firms, like we don't think in terms of capitalization and a cap table and recapitalizing the business. So can you just talk us through like what, what does it mean to say I want to recapitalize my business in buying an owner out? It may be when you look at your capital stack that somebody needs liquidity. There could be a couple of things going on. You know, something happened that was a a negative life event, and now you're dealing with an estate. You have an investor who needs liquidity, and you're also looking for growth capital. Invariably, what we're trying to do is find fresh capital to recapitalize or take or freshen up your your ownership table because there are needs for some people who will no longer be attached with the business, whether investor or former partner or sadly somebody who's passed. But this is really a business that wants to continue to stay the course in terms of their growth trajectory, but they need to satisfy some needs within the business and that maybe there's something that exists within their buy-sell agreements that say someone has the right to be taken out and they just don't have the wherewithal to do it. So those are situations where you try to be creative in your thinking. In the Again, in the good old days, there really wasn't a lot available. So that would be a prompter, even if it was minority ownership that needed an exit, that was the prompter for the 100% sale in the early days. Now today, what is more exciting is that there are opportunities to freshen up that capital table with new partners taking out old partners. 
And as I mentioned before, there are some sophisticated family offices that have put around investing verticals to do that in this space. There are capital sources that are either fundless sponsors or, you know, maybe it's convertible preferred, convertible debt, definitely private equity. Private equity in the early days in this space always wanted the technical control 50 plus 1%. Today, more and more sponsors who are really focused around financial services have investing arms that are willing to do minority stakes. So that's really what you're looking for when you're looking to recapitalize the business. And so how would a transaction like this come together? You know, uh, Jim died, he owned 30% of the firm. You know, we're, we're trying to figure out what to do. We didn't exactly have the cash around to buy Jim's 30% share. How does this work in practice? Oh, wow. So we went through one of those situations, which was a sad situation for a predominant owner, a 50 plus percent owner, and she had cancer. And so we were brought in to help facilitate the liquidity for what we knew would be her estate. And this group, and I'm not going to name names, had an incredible partnership, just the most phenomenal people just could not afford to buy this founder out. So we went on a very fast journey together to try and think about, you know, what are we accomplishing? How broad do we want to be in terms of the the choices with either, you know, debt financing or a minority investor or private equity partner? We went right up through the financial and strategic partners that you would think of that sort of roll off the tongue. And we got great engagement from the marketplace. It was a very sad event that we knew we were really financing out, but we were really looking at a growth partner because this incredible group was, again, on a tear, growing their business beautifully. In, I would say, we were on the 11th hour of our process, picking our finalists and all of a sudden, death came much sooner than we ever anticipated. So we had to fast track this process. We picked the very best of the very best partners. We moved at warp speed to see if it, we forgot about everybody else. We put them all on the side (laughs) and we went laser focused on one. And we had, you know, a lot of quality time in a very short period to figure out if we loved each other and then how could we structure a deal to satisfy what, what is now the estate satisfy partners who were just coming into the ownership stake, satisfy partners who were accumulators of ownership, and satisfy a new, much larger platform that we were combining with. So hopefully that's not the journey that everybody takes. But I can tell you in that particular situation, everything worked out as it should have, despite a very sad situation. But back to planning, Planning is really critically important in these events if we're thinking about recapitalizing. We need to know what we're trying to accomplish. So it's almost like doing a sketch of a business plan. What are we looking to do? What are our partnership criteria? Let's make sure that we narrow the field because we could wander aimlessly for years looking at different partners. There are so many out there today versus the environment that I started in. 
And we really try and get clients to think about it as a funnel. And if you don't think about it as a funnel to narrow the field, you won't get there smartly and you won't get there timely. So you really have to think about it in terms of all these partners out there. There's a partnership continuum from, as I mentioned, you know, it could be senior debt, mezzanine, it could be a minority investor, it could be private equity, it could be a financial holding company, it could be a strategic buyer, somebody who integrates, somebody who doesn't integrate. You know, there are so many choices. We have to narrow the funnel and say, do we still want to be us or are we open to being part of somebody else? Do we have a really big need? Can our partners here help finance that? Are we financially lucrative or are we in a position where we couldn't even finance this recapitalization or this event? So we have to go through that exercise to figure out what are our choices and we're essentially trying to narrow the funnel into, you know, a dozen choices as opposed to, I'm going to guess, I mean, our, our database has thousands of people in it. So you really, really need to narrow the field to make sure you get this done right. So how do investment banks structure their compensation? Like when you're involved in these things, like how does a firm like yours actually get paid? You know, we we live in on either an hourly world or an assets under management world. What does it look like in the investment banking world if a firm's coming to you and saying we need help with uh, buying out an owner or we want to acquire someone or we want to get acquired? How does your firm get paid for the work that you do? We are mostly success-based. So I guess that's the good news for the end consumer. But for us in particular, we charge a small retainer and then a success fee that's usually a function of transaction value. Why do we charge a retainer? I'll sort of fast track that if someone's thinking of hiring us. We charge it so you will be laser focused on our mandate. If you don't pay for anything, then you could be a great consumer of services without really having an end game in sight. So if you write me, even if it's a small monthly check, you are going to take my phone call. You're going to return my phone call uh-huh. if you miss it. Like once, once you're paying, it's like, wait, why am I paying, Liz, and not taking your phone calls? I guess I should probably be prompt in replying to these things. Exactly. But it also gets people to really, for us, it, it helps determine those who are serious, who've done enough of their mental work or at least the, the work with their partner group to know that this is really something that they want to accomplish. And that's really important because, you know, we have a high success rate, a high completion rate with our mandates, but just taking a step back from what the client sees in terms of our engagement letter, we vet things pretty carefully as a a partnership, a former partnership, now a, a unit of Raymond James, but it doesn't go into our work stream unless we push back on each other to say, Is this a client who is a serious client? Is this a mandate we think with at least 80% conviction we think we can complete? Is there enough clarity around their objectives? Are there enough opportunities in the marketplace to satisfy that mandate? If we don't feel like it is actionable for us, we will graciously decline the mandate because we don't want to not be successful on somebody's behest. So looking at the client side of the engagement, 
It's a monthly retainer fee, and that stops when we get into a document that will essentially suggest that we're going to get something definitive done. And then it's a success fee. And our success fee, I would say, broadly speaking, in investment banking, I'll just give you a range. It's sort of 2 to 4%, depending on the mandate. If you're on the technology side of the equation, there's some mad talent there, and it's usually a little bit more expensive. If it's sort of on the bank side, it could be a little bit lower because it's a very different process. But for us, it's funny, clients will sit back and think on it and say, my goodness, I'm going to pay you 2 3%. And you know that seems very expensive. And then you say, well, if you had a $25 million estate in Connecticut, how much are you going to pay that broker for listing on Zillow or on their website? And the answer is five, six percent. And we earn every cent of what we do. But, you know, it is something that if you're on the south side, it feels like there's a great alignment of interest because the more value we create for them, the more reward we create for us. So they're, they're, you know, probably... 30 times more successful for every dollar we create for them than we do for ourselves. But if you're on the buy side, sometimes that can feel like you're not on the same page. So wait a minute, I'm going to pay more for this franchise, but you're going to get more. So sometimes we try to be creative on that front because invariably we want our clients on the buy side to do great deals and we don't want them to worry going in that we're going to push them for maximum pricing merely to boost our fees. So we do try to think through that very carefully and how we can make sure we feel like we're on the same side of the table. Like it's an interesting thing to me. So as you said, on the one end, like if I build a you know a billion plus dollar advisory firm with $10 million of revenue and I might be looking at a 20 plus million dollar sale price and you start talking about numbers like two to 4% and it's like, that's four to $800,000 mm-hmm. in real dollar terms. Like that's a, it's a lot of hourly. That's like, that's a lot of hours. So if we start converting that into an hourly fee, but then I look at from the flip side, like, you know, does Liz's 25 years of expertise give you a decent chance that maybe she can figure out how to like haggle one more million dollars? Like, what's the chance she can get your firm sold for 21 million instead of 20 million because she knows 470 people who are buyers and you know one firm up the street who you've talked to once. Like it, you know, when the dollars get big, it's also like it doesn't really take a lot to have the sale just end out being more than 2% larger. Like you can do that on just a tax clause, you know, a little adjustment to the structure of the deal, never mind introductions and facilitation and running the deal to a close. And just, you know, in, in the same way that realtors at, at up to 6% can still do a great job earning their fee just by dressing your house properly for the people who walk through it. Like I know there's a similar phenomenon Mm -hmm. of what happens when you're trying to sell a business of, you know, having someone that can make sure it shows well is a very material factor that I, I think your analogy to real estate is a good one of like, okay, if we put this in raw dollar terms, it's a lot of dollars. But if you put it in terms of you know, can this person influence the value in the deal by at least two to four percent? It's like, oh, oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that's probably a pretty safe bet. Michael, I am going to hire you to market our services. <laughs> I just, I've, I've seen from the other end too many, 
too many advisory firms that came away with not good deals that they didn't realize until after the fact, because, you know, for most of us, particularly as advisors that are building and selling firms, like you've never done it until you've done it once. And you won't really have any lessons learned from having done it until after you've signed the paperwork and figure out what what happens when the dust settles. And just the the number of firms that I, I've seen that go through transactions of like, oh, my CPA just told me this is all ordinary income because we didn't characterize something a certain way. It's like, yeah, buyer did that to you on purpose. Like not to be mean because when it's ordinary income for you, it's usually deductible for them. So like they just got a 30 to 40% deal on this because you allowed them to structure it that way. But you know, might've helped to have someone in your corner. Well, and you're, you're absolutely right. It's funny because as you were talking, I was thinking back to one of our clients that I met through, I'm in a group called YPO, Young Presidents Organization, and I met him through YPO, and he had an offer on the table for $16 million. And he said, I'm not sure if I need a banker. He said, I think I could probably uh, goose them up to, to $20 million. And your fees look awfully expensive. So he tried to haggle our fees. And I just said, I'm so sorry. I said, I, I just, I try never to break. <laughs> you know, if you're, you're a $500 million franchise value, I'm probably going to break some. But, you know, at that size threshold, I try to stay very firm because otherwise I do myself a disservice in our business unit. But as we were talking, he said, what do you think the fair value is? And I, I always try to under promise. And my team does a beautiful job in over delivering. And I said, you know, I, I, I do think, you know, 20 is probably a good number, but, you know, I think 25 is, is probably an opportunity here. And, you know, we spent a fair bit of time together. Finally, he did get comfortable, but it was, it was a hard decision for him. And I get it. I get it. It's, it's real money. This is your life's work and you're entrusting it into my team's hands. But at the end of the day, we took his 16 million, which he thought he could get 24, and it turned into $32 million. And he will be our best referral source and our best uh, reference for the rest of our days. But we would never promise that outlier. And, and it was it's the a magical partnership. He's so happy with his new partners. They love him. But getting through that piece and we understand from the other side of the equation it just looks like a ginormous number and i'm going to now just tell them to listen to this point in your podcast and you will have pre-sold them before we get to that point in the engagement letter so so speaking of of kind of that theme what do you find most advisors don't understand about building enterprise value in their businesses you know often it is the the human capital I mean, these are all intangible businesses. So you would think that, I mean, that is the biggest part of business is the people. It's the people dynamic that they don't appreciate within their organization. And you can have very talented people, but they're not in the right, you know, they're not in the right seat. And they're not compensated the right way. They're unhappy because they've been doing a great job and they're not equitized. It is often the incentive structure, the compensation structure that really puts people as a, at a disadvantage for growth as opposed to helps power their growth. So that's definitely one thing. You know, making certain investments in things that aren't correlated to revenues, that is another thing. 
So people may be able to get to, let's say, a half a billion, three quarters of a billion, and it gets to be a great living, right? You can drive a lot of profitability, but the difference on somebody who's got $750 million in assets to someone who's got $2 billion in assets probably includes a bunch of C-level people that they're very reticent to hire. So a chief operating officer, a chief financial officer, a general counsel, you know, for me, and now I'll just take it back to, to my business evolution. I did start our business at the dining room table, but my husband, so I'm, I'm the gas, he's the break. He said, so you're thinking of setting up your own business. Where's your business plan? Which I said, I have a following. What do I need a business plan for? But uh, to his credit, he made me put a business plan together. And I, he, we agreed that we would invest the money to a certain point where I felt like it was a good practice and then said, you know, I, I, I am wearing so many hats. I'm so deluded. That's another thing that often happens. And that inhibits value. People don't realize that is that a friend of mine, Dave Patrick calls it stepping into the valley of death. If you really want to grow your firm, you have to take your business into the valley of death. And that means on profitability, You've got to reinvest in this, these human capital mm. components that once you have done it, you look back and you say, why didn't I do that earlier? So my husband actually stepped into our business as our COO and chief strategy officer. And until he did, I never realized how much stuff I was doing that was not related to my clients, right. which is what I'm passionate about. And then we hired a general counsel and operations manager. And until we hired that person, my husband, Peter, didn't realize just how much stuff was on his plate. So it's this wonderful ripple effect to the positive that you bring, begin to bring talented people in and start to take hats off. And the taking hats off is, you know, for people who are generally control freaks, type A people in this business is a hard thing to do. It's hard to give decision-making and authority over to other people. It's hard not to be seeing everything, but it's, it's a freeing exercise. And those that will take themselves into the valley of death, most, I would say 90% plus will come out the other side as a much better, tighter organization that is better run, better managed, and has a greater opportunity for that 10x growth into the next cycle in the next business phase. I I do feel though like David could have found a slightly more benign analogy than <laughs> Valley of Death. <laughs> Can we just call it like a Valley of Drudgery because it's going to be hard for a while? Dry times. <laughs> yes. Yes, the dry desert. That's right, the desert of profitability. <laughs> there we go. Yes. You have to you must quest through the desert of profitability <laughs> to find the promised land on the other side. I shall quote you, uh, Michael, on that when I use it. <laughs> I, I think we've, you know, I've read books that people make it through wandering in the desert. I'm a little more <laughs> concerned about the valley. So Having kind of lived this journey yourself, as you said, like from from kitchen table to practice to business to exit, what surprised you the most about building your own business on this kind of parallel journey? Oh, my goodness, how quickly it went. I mean, I can't even believe 13 years went by in a flash. 
you look back and, and it was more work than I ever envisioned. It really was a labor of love. So I have, I always had an appreciation because a client once told me, and this is 20 years ago, Liz making the decision to sell my business was the hardest decision I'm ever making next to asking my wife to marry me and having my first child, I guess, screw the second and third child. It was the first child that was a big decision. Yeah, that's when you change everything. After that, you're really just kind of doubling down. <laughs> exactly, down right. The they'll, they'll take care of each other. But in that moment, I, I, for the first time, really appreciated for him how much he had put of himself into the business. But it sort of came full circle for me when we were eating our own cooking, going through our process 13 years went by in a flash. I am so grateful for every partner that I, that I had and every client who took a chance on us in the early days. But to really have gone through that, what do we call it now? We're in the desert. Desert <laughs> the of profitability. Desert yes, of profitability. Exactly. At a couple of key points, and investment bankers are not cheap dates, I should say, to hire them. So a good VP runs you, you know, $350,000 in New York City. So these are not expensive people that we would add, and certainly with a COO and GC as well. And so those are hard decisions to make, but our business was always better for it to get more minds around the table who had different experiences, always made us not only better as an organization, but better at providing advice to our clients. And then actually going through the process myself, you know, is really making sure that I could take the, the emotion out of it. So I was the, the lead negotiator on behalf of my partners so that I felt like I was doing my day job. I had to treat it as if it was our youngest partner's business. So Jeff Brand, my, my younger, my more youthful partner, I would always think to myself, would that work for Jeff? And so I probably used him a million times when I was negotiating with the, the head of the investment bank at Raymond James, like, this is not going to work for Jeff. But, you know, to, to think about that next phase, you know, I really had to embrace the fact that it was not going to be my shop. And these are tough things for people to go through. And these are the things that I whip out my leather couch out of my back pocket and we're doing a little bit of the psychology with our clients we have to talk about how life will change under these circumstances. And so I can much better appreciate for them what it's like to turn over the reins to somebody else who's going to run the business and I am going to do a day job now. And I think I am, am a much better steward of their asset having gone through it myself. And I think I did a pretty good job before, but I'm much more attuned to what life is like after, where are the rubs, especially when you're integrating, how do you navigate those rubs? And so, you know, I think it, it will help my skill set having gone through this and hopefully give me the ability to do a better job on behalf of clients. What was the thing that has surprised you the most in, in the kind of the post-closing transition that, that, that shift, as you said, from from being business owner and founder into employee mode. Mm. So I'll give you the, the negative. And I, I always said this to my client, it would be difficult, 
but now I can say for sure, integration sucks eggs. That, that's a technical term. <laughs> technical term. <laughs> exactly. Like, like value of death. Integration. <laughs> exactly. It just sucks, right? When you're converting systems and you're learning new things and, and new ways that people do it, it really isn't very fun. It takes you off your game. And that's why we, we've always known that that's a tougher time. So whenever we're structuring earnouts, you know, contingent payments, we always try to say to our clients, don't ever do a payment in your first year at the first anniversary of the deal. And the reason you don't do it is because if you're doing a full-on integration, you know, there's going to be so much noise, you won't feel like you're doing your best to achieve that milestone. Mm-hmm. So I can appreciate that. But now on the flip side, you know, having a freedom of not worrying about operations, compliance. We ran our broker dealer for almost a year post our announcement of our deal, starting to eliminate some of the, the obligations on my plate or Peter's plate. You know, nobody, nobody raised their hand for chief compliance officer, but Peter drew the short straw as COO. <laughs> so that was free. Not having to worry about, you know, the vendor side of the equation, you know, technology, we've got a huge technology team to draw from. And then starting to sit back and think more strategically about where do I want to head my group. And for us, a big part of the reason on why we transacted, because we were knocking the cover off the ball, was really about, you know, back to Greg Fisher's 10x comment, we want to continue to grow and we want to grow smartly. And the biggest opportunity for us was cross-border opportunity, cross-border transaction work. And we had missed a deal because we didn't have an office in London that, you know, in hindsight, I should have shoved a partner in there in a Regis space. But, you know, we didn't have an office, but we were the right people for the job, but we didn't have boots on the ground. We have boots on the ground. We got 40 boots on or actually 80 boots right. on the ground, 40 times two at Hanover Square now. So I feel better equipped for that next mandate that really involves a client in the UK looking to do something in the US or, you know, a client in the US who wants to look at a emerging markets or international manager. I feel much better equipped today having colleagues across the pond who understand my domain. So that was freeing for me. That was exciting for me. So what was the low point for you in the building a firm journey over the, I guess, even just the the building career over the past 25 years? (sighs) You know what? It's, it'll sound like a crazy thing. I'm a happy person by nature. So a little Mary Sunshine is what one of my partners calls me. But, you know, I don't see any low points. I see some times where, you know, you just want to break out in tears because you're on your 14th hour of work because after all the phone calls are done with the clients, then you got to turn around and, and now do reviews of employees. And you're doing those at midnight with another partner who's out of San Francisco. And she and I would, you know, be on the phone late at night. And, you know, I'm like, oh my God, I'm, I guess I'll get sleep when I'm dead. Yeah. But, you know, it was a lot of sleep deprivation, but it was such a happy time. I just, I just enjoyed every moment of building that business. And I am lucky. I am so fortunate by the people who chose to join Silver Lane as we were in our journey. And we've got the best team I've ever had in my whole career 
and I am blessed to have that. So I don't really think of, it's sort of like going through labor was at a low point for a woman giving birth. You think back on it and there's actually a, somebody told me there's an enzyme that gets released in your brain. So you sort of forget about the painful moments. <laughs> and that's why pe- women will have another baby is because they forgot about that momentary pain. But for me, it just, it felt like such an incredible experience to watch something grow and be so much more than just a practice or just, you know, the Liz Nesfold show. And that's when you know you've built something is where people don't even, they don't even know you, you know, and they're a client of your group when they never met you and they never heard you speak. That to me is a blessing. And it's hard for some founders because again, we're all type A's in this business. But for me, it's the blessing that this business lives on. And so that's what I'm most excited about. I, I like that framing that like, you you know, you've really built something when a client joins the firm and they don't even know who you are. Exactly. So what, what comes next for you now that you've made the transition? <laughs> like what, where does this go from here for you? I don't know. Well, I'm doing my day job. I have an incredible roster of clients that I personally serve. So for me, that's so fun. I'm spending more time now, one year post-integration, doing the thing that I'm passionate about. And I'm not sure, you know, longer term what the future holds, because I I will probably pass my prime as an investment banker, you know, down the road someday. I hope to sit on boards and, you know, help people continue to grow their business and leverage my intellectual capital. But for now, I'm having so much fun with my clients. Even in this crazy, wicked market, I'm so blessed that we are as busy as all get out. So speaking of kind of these these markets and just the, the craziness we've all collectively been through over the past past few weeks and months now, I'm just curious, as you look out, not necessarily short term, like we'll we'll handle the volatility and the craziness over the next six or 12 months or however long it is before we, we find some new normal. When you look out over the longer term, like you know, ten plus years out, like what do you see changing or coming as a change from here that that maybe has shifted from all of the coronavirus pandemic? Like what's what's different about the future that we haven't realized yet? I think this is a, a moment in time that is gonna force change that has, I should say, restate that, has forced change on advisors who may have been slower to leverage technology as much as they could. I was fortunate starting a business 13 years ago. We did everything we could. And again, this is my fiscally conscious husband. We leveraged the heck out of every bit of technology, whether it was early adopter to Salesforce or Zoom. We were using Zoom when it was still VC-backed. Expensive five for expense management. You name it, we used it early but a lot of advisors still have been slower to really leverage technology or start to think about the workflows within their organization, because who would ever think that this is going to be an occurrence? More often than not, they were testing their systems for some kind of momentary failure, whether it was a flood or a tornado, and it was sort of you know we have an offsite server or server based in the clouds. You know, they've got their business continuity planning right, but this is a huge, huge disruption of their business. And for those advisors 
who had been, you know, really hesitant to engage digitally either with their clients or with their team. For those who never permitted work from home and probably now realize the benefit of that in terms of productivity, and I'll, I'll speak to that in a second, I think this has forced the industry to move very quickly into the future, or maybe where they should have been all along, but it's forced change upon the industry that will be radical changes to the way they think about business continuity planning. It'll be radical changes to the way they think about leveraging technology and radical changes to the way they think about engaging with their clientele and developing business. So think about one of my clients, one of the best business developers I've ever seen through digital medium, does a lot of, you know, podcasts, television, radio, educational seminars. They shifted to an online format and they're developing business. I mean, they've got a ton of new business flow. It's crazy enough coming out of this environment because they could shift it very quickly because they were well adept to doing that. But imagine going from maybe a third of your business flow, new business flow from digital engagement to now you have to rely on 100%, at least for, you know, let's say one quarter of activity. That's mind blowing. So I think, you know, over the next five years, we're going to see a different level of digital engagement that we hadn't seen before. There's certainly, when you think about some of the Zoom breaches, we're going to think about different security protocols. But clients, I think, are going to be much more comfortable. So for the advisor who gets on a plane to go see the client that's, you know, let's say 300 miles away, maybe that advisor is going to leverage technology a little bit more to engage. And maybe it's instead of four times a year visit on site, I'm going to do it three times by video or two times by video and two times in person. And I think that's going to be liberating for the industry itself it's going to create more opportunity to scale. It's going to open up more opportunity for, I will say, millennial engagement, Gen Z engagement, as these people are much more adept at technology than the old guard. I will Let me re, re, reframe that. Instead of old guard, we'll call it the more senior states people. But, you know, I think there's so much opportunity that comes out of this. And I know it's, it's a tough time that we're all going through right now. But this is back to chance favors the trained mind. Out of this, I will be very, very disappointed in this industry if they don't take some new lessons learned and some new ways to do business away to help scale their business and drive profitability and drive process management and workflow. I think there's a a unique opportunity around the corner. And I also think that's going to create the next wave of midsize and, and larger firms that we don't yet know. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and one of the things we always observed is just even the word success means very different things to different people. Uh, sometimes it changes for us as we go through stages of our lives. So you, you certainly built the, what I would call a, objectively call a successful business, like you know, started from the kitchen table to, to built to a practice, to build to a business, sold and exited, and now and now continuing on after the close. But I'm wondering, how, how do you define success for yourself at this point? Oh, that's a really tough one. <laughs> for me, I would say success is, you know, getting up every day and always doing your best. 
trying to, and I think back to Greg Fisher's example for me has been transformational and I think very impactful for my own business. Always looking to do better, even when you think you know it all or you have it all or you've done it all, there is always something you can learn or push yourself on or push to do better or smarter or faster. But for me, you know, I think it is just continuing to set and achieve goals and then create new goals and and move the goalpost even farther into the zone that makes you uncomfortable. And that people don't like to take themselves into zones that make them uncomfortable because it's easy to get real comfortable with a nice, it's a nice lifestyle, it's a great cash flow business, but always push in the goalpost. And I, I always want to continue to learn. And so it's, it's a really long definition I'm giving yeah. you, but just doing your best to continue to build and succeed and, and be happy. You know, happiness is the most important thing. If I, I die a happy woman, I know I will have been successful. Well, I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Liz, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Michael, what a great privilege to spend the time with you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com. <laughs>